Okay, gentlemen, so uh, my understanding is that uh, your uh, get-togethers here at Hawthorne School are all about the virtues, right? And uh, that's a very uh, noble task to understand better the virtues so that you, in turn, upon understanding them intellectually, are able to live those virtues and uh, have a life that is reflective of those virtues, you know, a life, you could say, of fullness, right, and uh, truth. The idea of talking about the virtues, in particular now the cardinal virtues, of course, you can imagine something that goes way back, right, as far as, certainly as Aristotle with his Nicomachean ethics, Plato, Cicero, all these uh, Greek authors certainly were very interested, Cicero also, and uh, the purpose of all this would be how to live a good life, how to be a good man, how to be upright, how to make right decisions, how to uh, bring about the fullness of yourselves as, as men, in particular men of God. Right? And so the categorization of the virtues as the cardinal virtues, right? uh, prudence, fortitude, justice, and temperance, goes way back to Aristotle, which, you, which they sought to kind of summarize all the different actions of man, and they came to those cardinal ones, those four, and on all the other imaginable virtues that you can have, all depend in some way on those. All right? So you name any virtue, and the task of philosophers is to see in which branch this depended on. Right? Like if you take, for example, chastity, it would depend more or less on the virtue of fortitude, right? Because it's the fortitude requires you to have the strength to exercise the good or to reach the good. In chastity is the fortitude to control one's sentiments, one's desires, one's impulses, and so forth, right? So any virtue, honesty, has to do with justice, and so forth. Any virtue is somehow connected with those cardinal virtues. Cardos, you know, the Roman roads were just like a kind of a cross the two main axes of a, of a city that's how they built their cities the roman cities so north south and uh, east west and all the little side streets depended on those main axes right so in the same way um, the cardinal virtues are the fundamental foundations of good human action on which all other types of virtues depend okay and so those virtues were reflected upon by the Greeks, but also came to be articulated, of course, by St. Thomas Aquinas. So lots of what I will say tonight depends on St. Thomas Aquinas, in particular the Summa, right? And he, he gives a foundational importance to uh, the cardinal virtues in terms of sanctity. He also sees the supernatural virtues, right? Like supernatural version, in this case, of, of prudence. But uh, it's like really the fulcrum of uh, the Summa. Right? And then the scholastic schools also did this. It was a great interest in, um, let's say, virtue ethics. Right? And so with time, the whole interest in virtues and ethics kind of fell to the background. There was a lot of interest more in um, sort of moral uh, dynamics or um, different, um, I'm, I'm looking for the word now, but just different studies about the moral value of specific acts, but not really from the point of view, like, okay, what is the best thing to do? That is the virtue ethics. And that changed largely in the 20th century with a number of authors. The authors that you may have heard of, a guy like uh, Joseph Pieper, who wrote the, uh, the Cardinal Virtues, he's, that's a great book. I think that dates to the 60s. He's an, I think he's uh, Austrian. He's a philosopher. 
Amazing book, amazing book. The Four Cardinal Virtues. But it's heavily scholastic, it's heavily based on St. Thomas Aquinas. And then a little bit later, you had other authors like uh, Alistair McIntyre, I don't know if you know him, or Elizabeth Anscombe, and they're reacting to the modern trends in philosophy uh, and metaphysics, and they're saying, wait, wait a minute, we seem to have forgotten about virtue. So Alistair McIntyre wrote a famous book, I think it was in the 80s or so, I remember uh, reading it ages ago, but it's called After Virtue. And that sort of brings back a f- both a form of personalism and a, and a way of how, okay, wait, how can we really act virtuously? And since then, there's been a lot more interest. You, know, you get a lot of books like uh, Edward Sri and stuff like that about the, the nature of the virtues and uh, how to live them. Right? So now, now you get more and more, and they're beautifully de- defined also in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Hmm? The Catechism describes virtue uh, as that which enables us to discern our true good in all the circumstances uh, and find the means to achieve it, right? the true good. But a virtue, when you look at the nature of what a virtue is, like the virtue to be strong, you know, fortitude or something, the nature of the virtue lies in it being a habit that you acquire for the good. A habit, right? Whereas a vice is a habit that you acquire for the bad or for the evil. And when you talk about a habit, right? Like, like I have the habit of, of um, I don't know, I have the habit of, of going for a run every morning. Now, is it a big deal for me to go, if I have a habit of doing something, is it a big deal for me to do that? No, I, I do it every morning. I do it, no problem. I have a habit of having coffee. I have a habit of doing it. The habits are a way of ingraining in your action, a specific action that is facilitated. So if you have a habit of doing something, if you have the habit of opening the door for a lady, you don't stop in front of the door and go, okay, oh, this is so hard, I don't know if I should do this. You just, it's normal for you, it's gentlemanly, you open the door, right? But a guy who doesn't have that virtue or that habit, he doesn't think about it, he forgets about it, he doesn't realize and bang, the door slams in her face. You know, he, he, because he doesn't have the, in this case it would be, whatever, gentlemanliness or whatever you want to call it, right? So habits facilitate the action that you're doing. If you have, the, if you have a habit, it's easy to do it. In the same way, if you have a true virtue, it's easier to do it, okay? So for example, if I have the virtue of temperance and I see, um, I see a beer, I'll have one beer, okay? That's good, good for me. But the alcoholic who does not have the virtue of, of temperance like it's very hard for him not to have that extra beer okay so let's say I have a beer thanks bye guy bye the other guy <laughs> he ends up with one beer but it's like you know it took him all his efforts to not get the second beer who has the more merit who has the more merit who has the greater merit the guy who no problem didn't have the second beer or the guy who struggled did the same thing struggled like crazy and drove home without the second beer but he's there sweating sweating you know who has the more merit it's true it's meritful to try to make that effort there is an obviously an element but the other guy why was it no problem because it was ingrained in him already he has the habit of being temperate he's always temperate right so that's the fruit of so many times not having a beer, or so many times. And so it's, it's in his DNA practically, you know? Okay? Why? He's virtuous. He has, in this case, the virtue of temperance. 
Whereas the other guy, he's constantly having beers, and the one day that he, he can't have it, it freaks him out, right? Because he's never saying no, right? So he has the vice of having several beers, right? So that's just to give you a, a, a bigger picture of the concept of habits. That's a philosophical concept. I'm explaining to you in a certain way, but that comes directly. It's a habit for the good, or uh, a well-anchored habit for the good. That definitely comes from St. Thomas. So, so the whole uh, educational program of Hawthorne is centered around the virtues, right? And naturally the virtues are habits that you help them acquire for the good. So when they come out of here, it's practically easy for them. It's never easy to do the good, but it's easier for them than for another child who hasn't had those virtues ingrained in them. Okay? And those habits, the habits apply to the whole spectrum of, of uh, human action. I mean, everything, you know, from piety to, to order to uh, justice, you know, to kindness, to charity. It's like every imaginable type of action. I mean, coming here, you had to exercise the virtues in some way, right? But now what we want to do is look specifically at the most important of all the virtues, and it's prudence. Okay, And the hierarchy of virtues, that's like the number one. Like we don't identify it like that. We have a skewered understanding of prudence. We think of, don't go, don't, don't do this. It's like no to, you know, it's like kind of like, it's like a don't be, be careful, be, be careful, be prudent. That's not prudence. Okay, that is, it's something else. It's, it's, it's the kind of popularized understanding of prudence, but it's not real prudence. Real prudence, uh, I'll give you a Latin expression which you probably won't know. Auriga virtutum. Okay, auriga, does anybody know what auriga means? It means the charioteer of the virtues. So imagine you have the horses in front, you have fortitude, temperance, and justice. And they're, they're ready to go. Okay, you have a, a bunch of horses on your chariot, and you let them go. They're just going to go anywhere. They're just going to go running. It's going to be you know, chaos. But if you have a charioteer, the charioteer is going, okay, let's go over here, let's go over there. You know, the charioteer guides the right place for all those virtues to go. Temperance, you know, you, you can have an excess of temperance, you can have a defect of temperance, excess of fortitude, defect of fortitude, and justice as well. Right? So each virtue has to be the mean between the excesses. So I'll explain that in a second, right, to give you examples of that. Right? So that's traditionally how uh, Aquinas described the virtue of prudence, auriga virtutum, the, the, the charioteer, right? So it guides. So that, what does that mean? It means it's actually a cognitive virtue. It is, it is the virtue, in the other way that he says, is recta ratio agibilium. To me, for some reason, it's the one phrase that... I, that it helps me to understand. So recta, upright, ratio, mind or thought, right? Ratio, the, like reason. Right, reason, agibilium, in action. That's what prudence is. It's right reason, so it's actually an intellectual virtue, but how to apply it in concrete cases. That's what prudence is. Right? And we have to do that, I mean, we, we have to do that Every day, we have to make a judgment every day. You know, should I buy that new boat? You know, should I get that thing on Amazon? Should I click here? You know, is it worthwhile for me to get a new car? Should I get a Corolla? Should I get a Honda? You know, you're constantly, th those are intellectual 
thoughts that you're having, right? But you apply it in the real world in how you're going to act, right? And so we're, you know, we, we make these prudential, we call them prudential judgments. We make these every single day, every single moment, right? They guide they our action, right? So it's not a, it's not a, act of prudence until you actually act, right? So, um, so that's why um, it includes both judgment and the most appropriate way to achieve that specific goal and then to command, right? So um, it, in, it involves, of course, uh, memory, memory of, past, of the past. So you apply, you take your memory of a given action and you apply it to the presence. Always apply to the concrete moment now. Prudence never applies to the theory. It's always to now. Theory is what happened in the 18th century with casuistry. That was the word I was looking for. Casuistics. They said, okay, what if a guy did this and then he did that and then he was stolen a hundred dollars and you know they, they made these crazy casuistry cases and they tried to resolve them. Which it's a good thing, you know. But that's not the action of that's not the virtue of prudence. Prudence is right now. Uh, what do I do in, th- in this case? What do I say to my wife when she comes home and I forgot to to buy you know the, the steaks that we were, I promised? What do I say? You know, or, you know. So you have to go to your past, that is your memory. Then you have to have a knowledge right now in the present situation as far as possible, and then you have to foresee the consequences of your decision foresee the consequence of your decision, right? Like if you were able to act in such a way that you knew exactly, if I do this, all that is going to happen. You'd, be, you'd practically be like God, right? That's why when, you know, when something happens in your life, right? Like we have this principle in, in the Christian faith. If something bad happens to you, uh, you know, you get diagnosed with cancer, you, I don't know, something bad, right? What do, we, what do we try to do there? We try to look at this in the context of divine providence. You know, we say, okay, this happened to me. Uh, you know, my, my house burnt down or I don't know. Good things too, I mean, we, we say. We always try to see things in the context of divine providence. Right? So God allowed that thing to happen because he knows that this is somehow for our good. God always allows things to happen for our good. We don't understand how such and such a thing could be for our good. We don't understand how the earthquake in, in Turkey could possibly be for our good. But he can do that. It's providence. What does providence mean? Providere. It means he sees ahead. Videre means to see. Pro, you know, in front. So he sees ahead. And that's where the very word prudence comes from. Pro, dense, pru, pru, that's what it said, right? Uh, St. Thomas makes that sort of verbal trick. He says, prudence has the same root as providence. So when we act prudently, we act knowing what happened to us in the past, the situation now, and what could happen in the future. And so the best action is the one that I consider good, not what was bad. I I take that into account. I see the present, and then I apply it to the future. So it indicates really ultimately the right measure of all the other virtues and how I have to use them, right? And that is that fa- famous principle of Thomistics, uh, which is uh, in medio virtus, in medio virtus, which means virtue is the mean between excesses, between extreme and defect, right? So, because you can have an extreme of fortitude, 
like uh, you know you can run into battle without armor and just get yourself killed I mean that's okay you're being you know a bit imprudent by doing that but you think oh I'm strong I can do this yeah but chill man put your armor on you know or you can be the defect which is no fortitude at all and, and cower in behind all the troops right that would be the opposite so the defect is to run away the excess is to run into battle without armor and the mean is the exact expression of that virtue of fortitude right which would mean well whatever it means in the specific moment to be to have that in this case afforded courage to go out and so forth right the virtue of prudence when you apply to that it's a little bit more difficult to think well how can i have an excess of prudence how can I have a defect of prudence? It's very hard to, because it's a cognitive idea. So we apply those excesses or those defects to the different acts of prudence. There are three acts of prudence. Does anybody know what they are, the three acts? Whenever you, when you're cogitating, should I buy this boat or not? Does it make sense? Should I go to the talk tonight on prudence? Um, should I have that extra beer? There are three things that happen in any act of prudence. First, there is counsel. Second, there's judgment. And third, command. Or maybe you could call it action, but command. So first, counsel. So for you to make a decision, the best way to make it is to counsel in your own memory, of your own experience, but also ask others, right, who have more experience in this. So if you have a, different, a difficult investment to make, well, you're going to ask an investor you know knows something about this and you're going to supply your knowledge with the experience of somebody else who knows that that's that makes sense to ask right and uh, and then you judge okay well my experience is this this guy says this boom this is what i'm going to do you make a decision but it's not finished yet you actually have to go and do it right and so there's no prudence until it's actually done it's actually put into action, right? For example, you know, you could have, uh, um, you know, excess in counsel. So that's the first thing. So you could just think in hours and hours, go to all the websites imaginable to, before, and you just can't come up. You're just thinking and thinking, overthinking. Which I see this today a lot, right? Indeed, in our world today, we are so saturated by information, right? So saturated. We all have our phones, you know, what time does this, we look, we look it up and we get all that information constantly. And so that, that has positive, uh, you know, elements, but also, like, that's what happens with saturation. Like, you have too much. You don't know, or it's very, it becomes very difficult to discern what is good and what is bad. You have this also today with news about the church, right? There's, the Pope says one thing, and yet this website, that site, boom, 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 everybody speaks about it all over the place. And some in really bad, some in really good. And, uh, you know, so you have to discern a little bit about all that information, right? So you could do that too much, and that would be excess. You know, the opposite, not doing it, is is kind of thoughtlessness. Just like, you know, running whole hog into doing a, doing something without even thinking about it at all. Right? That would be thoughtless, or you know, just um, you know, not thinking it through. Right? Imagine you 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 hear a piece of news from a sketchy website on the Pope. The Pope must be like that. <laughs> I read that in Lifeside News. Oh, must be right. You know, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's life site news. Now that just go easy, you know. So that person who makes a judgment based on one website 
is imprudent, or at least in the moment of his counsel, taking counsel, right? Then we have, of course, uh, judgment. We have to think about judgment in terms of our ultimate end, the highest value that it might have. Eh? And that is not always easy to see. Characteristic of a mature person with prudence is they say, okay, I'm going to make this decision. Now, there's one decision I can make that could be really easy and pleasant. Maybe that's good for me now, but what about, would it be good for me in the future, Right. Uh, people will really like me if I make that decision, right? So uh, it's sometimes very difficult to distinguish between long-term goals and short-term pleasures, right? So uh, is it good for me to have that extra cake now? Well, it's good in the sense I'm going to really enjoy it, right? Yeah, okay, good. But, you know, cholesterol-wise, is it going to really... So that's, that's another judgment you have to make, right? It's a judgment you're making, right? If you don't think about it uh, too much or, or well, you know, you could not think about the long-term consequences. That would be imprudent. But the final act of any act of prudence is command. Huh? As I was saying, it's not prudent until you actually do it practically in the real world, in, the, in real life. Huh? And uh, that basically means we put into practice what we should do. Okay, Which leads us to consider one of the fundamental obstacles to that last aspect or that act of prudence, which is procrastination, okay? Procrastination. So you've studied it. It'd be good for me to do this. I have to do this work. I have to write this report. I judge how I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to this website. I'm going to do it. That's what I have to do. But then you don't do it. Right. You procrastinate. I'm going to take out the garbage. I know I should. It's Tuesday. I have to take out the garbage. But then you don't do it. You procrastinate. The, the phenomena of procrastination is a kind of... Um, it's, it's not doing right away what you ought to and what you know you ought to because of this sludge of uh, procrastination. So uh, it's important to remember that the good is not a good when it is left for later. Okay. When it is left for later, it is actually not a good at all because you haven't actually done it. Right? So um, if you leave it sitting on the shelf, that thing, that duty, that ought, remember that ought, I ought to do this, has an element of justice to it. Right? It's a responsibility. I ought to do it. But I'm not doing it. That lacks prudence, but it also lacks justice. Right? So it may also lack fortitude because I don't feel like doing it. So I don't overcome my uh, not feeling good. So, so Sin Rosaria always spoke about two attitudes in relation to, to prudence. On the one hand, there's this flexibility that we have to have to know how to um, adapt to every situation without being uh, too tied to sterile casuistry, you know, like casuistry. Uh, and that casuistry, that's that, that comes from pride and uh, from a from an exacerbated fear of being wrong, right? And so, uh, when you're not flexible, a person who's not flexible with your children, you're not flexible about a given rule, right? That is a sign of imprudence, right? Because you don't want to. You, no, no, no. We decided. That, uh, there's no discussion about this. That is not a prudent, necessarily a prudent um, declaration, let's say, right? And it can be very unappealing to, to children, especially, right? 
And usually, it comes from the pride of not wanting to be wrong. Right? And on the other hand, uh, uh, what is much more appealing is the willingness to rectify. Right? So a, pr- a person is prudent not because he never makes mistakes, but because he corrects his errors. He sees precisely with the counsel he takes from others, he, he's able to correct his, his errors. Now, I'll give you an, also another example uh, of this. Um, it's not, I'm just going to talk a little bit more about uh, procrastination in a sec, but it's this inability sometimes to have this flexibility. Uh, like, like a Catholic might think, okay, what's the obligation about going to Mass? Do we have to go to Mass on Sunday? What's the obligation? Everybody would say we have an obligation to go to Mass, right? It makes sense, right? So, uh, okay, so we should go to Mass. Okay. So you have your eight-year-old throwing up and, and, and all red in the face because she's sick. So a guy who's not prudent and not flexible would say, look, it says right here. We have to, it's, it says right here. And, uh, and she says, come on, you're going with, the, you know, and causes this inflexible moment. I mean, maybe I'm using an over-exaggerated uh, example. Or, for example, uh, honoring your parents. We have to honor our parents. You know, you have to honor your parents. And, uh, well, mom says that when we go, we should uh, uh, do so-and-so at home, and, and then you decide, you know, the kids decide not to do it. And you could badger them about honoring your parents in, in such a way that... It ultimately alienates, you see, and it would, it would be, it's as though you have the law itself, and you have the application here, and for some people, connecting the two becomes a source of alienation because they don't, they don't have that flexibility. And that fle- lack of flexibility comes from a lack of prudence or prudential judgment, okay? I don't know if I'm, I'm making clear, but I've seen people like these super Catholic types that have, you know, an idea about and it's, it's usually a correct idea, but they can't seem to coherently ap- apply it to daily life and the daily kind of adventures of life, right? They can be very rigid, right? But w- and we see, oh, that's so rigid. But if you see it, the sort of the DNA of it, it's, it's really a lack of the virtue of prudence. And when there's that pr- imprudence there, it, it, it happens everywhere else, right, in a person's life. L- let's look at... Uh, Procrastination, all right, that because that has to, procrastination has to do with the putting something into an act, right? So, you know, what does procrastination mean? Pro, cras, you know, it's Latin. Cras is tomorrow, right? So you pro, you put it tomorrow. That's literally what procrastination is to put something off for tomorrow, right? So, um, I would say in the realm of prudence, procrastination always involves a kind of a double. Uh, deception. Uh, First, you get deceived by the thought that all the effort the task will take is too much. You're deceived by that. I have to put out the garbage. Okay. I mean, I have to go to every room in the house and and plus I have this thing to do, I have my work to do, and I have to do all this, and plus it's smelly and it's dirty. So you a person procrastinates because that task, he's now made this mountain of what it will take to do that task, but the difficulty is actually facing up to beginning the task, not to the process. It's the actual act of beginning, right? And the second deception is you deceive yourself by the thought that by putting it off is better, even though uh, you know it's, it's uh, better to get started. You know, you're, 
you're deceiving yourself that putting it for tomorrow is somehow better. It's another. It's a double deception. Both the deception, the difficulty of the task, and the deception that is somehow better to leave it later. And it happens all the time in our life, right? Procrastination. You try to see how often you're hit by it, right? But from the inner point of view, it's something that happens within the actor himself as a form of reluctance. Right? It's a reluctance to act, right? And so there are two big problems with uh, procrastination. First, that self-deception. Right? Uh, you tell yourself, I'll do this tomorrow. Procrast. And it's easy in this to deceive ourselves, right? Because it always starts with a form of deception, but also a form of illusion, right? Because first you rationalize that it will be easier for me to do this tomorrow. And why do you rationalize that? Well, to avoid the guilt, right? Because if I said it's, I'm going to do it tomorrow, well, I'd be guilty of not putting out the garbage. I'd be guilty. But if I say, no, I'm doing it tomorrow because tomorrow uh, there'll be less snow. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, uh, but that's an illusion, right? That's a form of deception, but that's the only reason why we procrastinate. Like, if you can't find a reason why it would be easier tomorrow, then you don't really procrastinate, actually. Right? So uh, the second um, illusion is uh, is that is that the task is going to be super hard to do for me, right? And uh, and so what happens? We see the effort that it's going to entail, and this perception of the effort blocks you, right? and it's what we call the cost entry illusion, right? The, the cost of that, right? And you think, well, I have, to, I have this to do. I have this report to write. It's so hard to write this report. 20 pages, okay? The report is 20 pages. And it's as though the 20 pages are bunched up in one single act, right? Whereas if you were to write those 20 pages, well, you'd write one page. Then you'd write a second page. Then you'd write a third page. And, you know, writing one page is not that hard. Writing a second page is, is like another one page. But the illusion is that it's like the 20 pages are bunched up in one massively hard boulder to, to do, right? And that's, that's this bunched up entry, uh, entry point. And so it's important that when you are procrastinating something or in that process, you say, well, what's the first thing I will do? I'm not doing the whole thing. I'm just doing this task, like taking out the garbage. I'm just going to go to the kitchen and take that. That's my first task. That's not that hard. The second task is to go to the bathroom. Okay, that's not that hard. Third task is... Uh, fourth task, fifth task is to open the gar garage door, get the things. So each task in and of itself is not that hard. But if you look at the whole thing, you know, putting the boots on to go outside, I don't know, all that, you know... And that has this mesmerizing quality to it, you know. It's the high cost entry of entry, right? And that's what leads you to procrastinate. Right? And that's part of the delusion uh, in front of somebody who's not really living prudence. Hmm? It could also be applied to getting out of bed. Getting out of bed is a lack of prudence. Getting out of bed, okay? Because, uh, like I heard this story of a lady who says that she wrote uh, a card to remind her Tomorrow I will get out of bed. That's what it said. Tomorrow I will get out of bed. And she put it at her bed table. You know? And when the alarm went off, she read, Tomorrow I'll read, yeah, tomorrow I'll, I'll get out of bed. You know? So it was like a perpetual self-deception going on there, right? So, um, so when you wake up, me, 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 me. Now, you know, 
perfectly well that the best thing for you now to do is to leap out of bed. You know that. Like intellectually, you know that, right? I mean, that is the obvious truth of human existence, right? That you have to... But you're going, okay, I'm getting out of bed. And then I have to go, go to work. I have to traffic. The DVB. And then I have to see my boss. And then, like, it's your whole day. It's like a, you know, like a boulder on top of you as you're sitting there in bed not doing it, Okay? And it's suddenly, like, you're, you're being with, and that, what happens? Stress. Stress builds well. And with stress, it comes heavier and heavier. And then the second boss, it's like, oh my God. And then my wife, oh my God. I'm with the kids, oh my God. You know, it's like, because you're giving it time to reflect on all that size of the day, right? But if you have that plan, and you have that decision, as soon as that thing goes off, I am out of here. So you don't even think. You don't even think. You just leap. So that's, that's, a, that's a very painful action, you know, to leap out of the warm bed. I mean, that is part of... Uh, but precisely in front of that, what happens to your body? Your body is like drills you with a, you know, powerful adrenaline rush. I mean, and it's, you could try to experience it. See if by leaping out into the cold air, you actually experience an adrenaline and you're there. Okay, I can take this day, man. Let's go. If I got this one, I can take my boss. I can take whatever, you know. And suddenly, the day doesn't look all that uh, difficult, you know. So just a few seconds of thought makes the same day go from this huge, massive boulder to this little thing. I can do this, right? And that a lot of that has to that that's really the chemical impact of adrenaline, you know. But um, but it also has to do, of course, uh, with prudence because you're you're putting to action now what ought to be done now, right? without being um, overwhelmed. And so, it's the same thing, you know, all those tasks that you have ahead of you seem to be all on you at once, right? where, where in reality, they all spaced out when you actually live them out, right? So before you undertake a task, uh, we have this tendency to look at the whole thing as one big monster, and that can intimidate us, right? And it can seem huge. So, so that affects not the counsel, not the judgment, but the command, Right, the command aspect, right, of of the virtue of prudence. Um, but if you take the first step, it's not actually that hard. Eh? And uh, so, prudence allows us to identify in the very moment what we're doing, and also, I would say, to have a certain sincerity and a transparency with yourself. You know? Like, um, you know, like paying the taxes. You know, oh my God, paying that, and you you picture this massive governmental. Oversight, like it's it's get, becomes this huge monster, right? And um, but what you should think is, wait a minute, what is the first thing I have to do here? Well, there's a drawer, and there's the first T uh, four that you can pull out. Turn on the computer. Like each step is not as inhibiting as you might think, right? And that takes a certain um, sincerity to overcome the kind of vague concept of doing the taxes, right? And uh, that you identi- prudence helps you identify each step along the way, right? And what do I, must I do? What's the first step and so forth, right? You have to start with a certain discipline, a certain order, uh, using, again, your intellect to see. That's where prudence comes in, huh? to define the first step. Huh? 
And uh, once you start that, the, the illusion of the bolderness or, or the horror of it, it begins to disappear, you know. And in fact, once you start doing it, just like getting out of bed, you can actually get enthused, you know. Oh, this is so interesting. Oh, I got this T4, I got this, t-. you know. It's, it, you can actually get enthused because you have a certain dominion over each task that you're doing, right? So Pieper, Joseph Pieper talks about nimbleness, right? Trueness to being of memory, right? a kind of open-mindedness and a clear-sighted objectivity uh, in expectation of the circumstances. And these are, these are all qualities that are proper uh, to, the, to the prudent man. So what he insists often on is this idea. So you're not prudent until you actually act. You may have the most brilliant ideas, right? You may be the greatest writer in your, in your head, you know, but they're no good until you actually imprint them into an actual action uh, or like type something on your computer. That's an action, right? Uh, or you print, it's like printing on a paper. Imagine if somebody told you, yeah, have you written a novel? Oh yeah, I've written it, but it's all up here. Well, then you haven't written it. You're not a novelist if it's just up here. You have to have it printed out, right? And maybe the life we live in, you know, all the virtual world kind of takes away the reality of a lot of our are things and it's hard to sometimes it's a little bit less uh, easy to see that right he says that the prudent man who issues imperatives makes resolutions and decisions however fixes his attention precisely upon what has not yet been realized the not yet that is the focus of the prudent decision and it w- w- is still to be realized right and the first prerequisite for the perfection of prudence as an imperative is therefore providencia, foresight, right? So this ability to see if I do this, this is going to happen, right? But that's why he says, you know, that the two are very uh, uh, similar, right? So Aquinas says that when he comes to a decision, man cannot ever be sufficiently prescient or, you know, foreseeing. Nor can he wait until logic affords him absolute certainty. Okay? So that's also why people procrastinate. You know, they study, should I buy this boat or, or should I buy that? And they don't have absolute certainty, right? So you can never make any decision on any action with absolute, total, unmitigated certitude. It's just, you just say, I'm going to do the, the most certainty I can get and you have to act even if there's a, some doubt in it, right? But the person who says, no, I'm not acting until I'm absolutely 100%, like, that is not a prudent person because that is not an achievable aim to arrive at this absolute, absolute sort of, uh, you know, very severe form of certitude. You know, and it, uh, it's, it's somewhat uh, inhumane because it can't, you can't really get at that. And that those are the people who are always self-doubting they're always full of, uh, you know, uh, insecurity. You know, when you're insecure, you're going over all the possibilities of how you might be wrong, right? And you, you don't throw yourself into you. Those are people who have dreams of being a painter, dreams of being a this, being a, you know, and they never do it. They just know about it. And in fact, they're probably very creative, but they never do it because they're uncertain and they don't sort of plow through that sense of uncertainty. And, and the thing is, there can never be. It's impossible, hmm? Because if we wait for that, we would never really come to a decision. That's the thing. If you wait for an absolute certainty, you can never come to a decision. You would remain in a kind of inconclusiveness, 
unless um, you kind of shift away from the deceptive attitude or, or, or certitude. It says, the prudent man does not expect certainty where it cannot exist, nor, on the other hand, does he deceive himself by false certainties. Right? Just a few last things here to, to mention here. So, so the three uh, acts of prudence are counsel, judgment, and then command. If on one hand a person overthinks a decision when he's counseling, another is thoughtlessness or just, you know, just going ahead, you know. The, so that happened, for example, in, um, in Herod, Herod Antipas. You remember when he was uh, in the gospel, it tells how Salome came and danced. He was at a party and stuff. Salome danced and she like just like mesmerized him with her, with her dance and she must have been very voluptuous and stuff. And he was just taken aback. And that's fine. That's good. I mean, she must have been really good. But what was his thoughtlessness? He said, Wow, you're amazing. I'll give you anything you want. Even have my kingdom. Like, what the hell, man? You have your kingdom? with That was thoughtless. Okay, that's first point. Of course, you know, she doesn't know what to ask. She goes to her mother, mother who had a rancor or bitterness and resentment against John the Baptist. She says, give me John the Baptist's head right here on a platter. He hears that and he goes, Oh, yeah, you really... And the gospel says, but because of his guests, he could not say no. Right? So second act of imprudence, like using your reputation in front of the guests to do an immoral act uh, is rather thoughtless and imprudent, of course. right? And, um, and also the idea that he was somehow bound to that oath that he made. You cannot be bound by an oath that is to do something uh, evil. He wasn't bound to, he didn't make an oath to chop off his head. He made an oath to give half his kingdom. Yes, okay. Even that is pretty imprudent, but um, so he could have, had he been a prudent man, he could have said, no, 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 no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. not the head. He could have said that, right? I mean, he would never have said, if he had been prudent, he would never have offered her half, half her kingdom, but you understand, he could have rectified. He could have rectified, but I suppose the drink and so induced him not to um, not to really rectify, and so part of the lack of rectification is not just not just imprudence, also pride and, and arrogance and so forth, right? And so, um, yeah, so he didn't rectify. So, lack of prudence always involves an absence of something, huh? a lack of a needed quality, right, That for you to act. So, you lack proper consideration, you lack properly founded judgment, and then you lack vigorous and final uh, decision. So, um, yeah, and the last point I just wanted to make here uh, before finishing is, is this, all this it can be seen from a purely natural point of view. Everything we've talked about, and, and these kind of things are discussed certainly in Aristotle and Cicero and Plato. And even to a certain degree, you know, in Confucius, you know, although I don't think he uses the concept of cardinal virtues, but, but there's also the whole supernatural dimension of the virtues, right? And we talk about supernatural prudence, right? So one thing is, is the, is the uh, human prudence, but there's also supernatural. And uh, if we've seen the human part, it should, we should say also that we are also faced with a very difficult task, one that is quite like unattainable right, when we try to discover, for example, what God's will is for us. Right? And for that, you know, what's God's will? Like, what's God's will right now? What's God's will today? And very often, you know, the priest, he has to help uh, people to discern, right? Uh, but he can't tell them, oh, this, I, I think this is God's will. He, that is not his role. He can open some avenues, but it's the person who has to decide. 
but he has to decide with the supernatural virtue of uh, prudence. And so, what does that mean? It means with total faith and trust in divine help that I'll make this decision, but I know God will help me and God will guide me. And certainly, St. Rosemaria was convinced that if God asked him something of him, even though it might be uh, imprudent in human terms, so just in terms of human outcomes, you wouldn't do this, but in supernatural outcomes, he would launch into action, you know, um, because he knew God would provide the means. So, like, he, he, he wanted to start a sanctuary, but, you know, he had a certain vision, but it was like, if you had asked any developer, you know, a, you know, a human developer, do you think it's a good idea to build a sanctuary in the middle of nowhere in Torcidad, uh, right, where there's just deserted mountains, they would have said, forget it, man, we're not uh, endorsing that. But he said, well, supernatural prudence, that he had a whole sort of history behind why he thought God wanted of them. He said, God is going to help, and he's going to bring this through. And sure enough, you know, I mean, he's got a beautiful, readable, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful sanctuary, and that's kind of what you go. You know, people find it very difficult to get there. It's kind of indeed in the middle of nowhere, and, and yet people go, and there's so many conversions. People go there, and one senses deeply that, um, you know, he received God's... Uh, you know, help because he had a supernatural purpose, as with the many other elements uh, of his life, right? And uh, he said, uh, in your apostolic undertakings, you're right. It is your duty to consider what means the world can offer you. Two plus two equals four. But don't forget ever that fortunately your calculations must include another term. God plus two plus two, right? Equals, well... (laughs) God plus two plus two, I don't know, it's like, it's something uh, unimaginable, right? So like that, so when we're referring to that, we're referring not to human prudence, we're referring to supernatural prudence, right? And some people may live their Christian life exclusively from a very kind of micromanagerial human prudence point of view and are not ready to launch on to, launch out, you know, to difficult tasks, uh, doing apostolate, uh, you know, speaking to somebody who might be against the faith when you try to bring them about, or, I don't know, all these things that one could undertake, right? Um, and, uh, and so, that's why you have to have recourse to supernatural prudence. Okay, gentlemen, I hope I didn't go on too long, but uh, that's what I wanted to present with you.